This is your woo-woo best friend, a show about attainable transformation. Hey there, it's Andy, and this is your woo-woo best friend. Welcome back to the show. If this is your first time joining us, welcome. We have lots of new students in our program that we launched in the month of August called The Unschool. And I know some of you are starting to listen to the podcast. If you've not yet checked out our entire series from this summer called The Unschool, make sure you go give those episodes a listen. If you are not yet familiar with what we're doing inside The Unschool, it's our Intuitive Business Academy. The Unschool is all about deprogramming how you're supposed to do business in favor of using that intuitive flow, your divine feminine insight, paired with practical proven strategy, including all sorts of templates and copy and worksheets that I use in my own business. I am giving you those. Today's guest is very much someone who uses that intuitive insight and flow within her business and also brings the proven practical strategy. I'm going to tell you about her in just a second. If you're interested in checking out our free masterclass to show you how to launch an intuitive business, especially if you're interested in launching a course or a service business, this free masterclass could help you so much. We're talking about AI and using it in your business. We're talking about how to use your human design for content creation and then how to really dig deep and create an offering that's really beautiful and irresistible to your perfect people. So all of that is included in the free masterclass. I'm going to include the link here. And then if you love it and you want to go way deeper, you can can join us inside the Unschool Intuitive Business Academy, which includes two courses, How to Start and Manifestation Blueprint. We're doing some deep money work inside of the program too. I've been seeing this trend going around called girl math, and it's basically the idea that we're a little bit dumbed down around money, us girls, and I just do not believe in that idea at all. You know me, and I believe that women should be talking much more about money and how we can really maximize what's possible for us around money and our financial literacy. To me, that is what girl math should be, is normalizing conversations about investing and 401ks and index funds and how to raise capital to create a business or how to build a business from scratch. My guest today is going to share some of her process around what that looked like for her. So let's get into the conversation. Let's meet today's show guest. I've been so excited to share this interview with you. You may know her from her Instagram page, Reset NYC. This is none other than Liz Tran. She's the creator of Reset, an executive coaching company to CEOs and founders. She's also the author of one of my very favorite books right now, The Karma of Success, Spiritual Strategies to Free Your Inner Genius. Before Reset, Liz spent a decade in tech, most recently as the only female executive at a top venture capital firm. Today, Liz coaches the CEOs and founders of the fastest growing companies in the world. I know she is with me on my definition of girl math. And altogether, they've raised more than $500 million in funding and created over $4 billion in enterprise value. Her clients are backed by funds like Box Group, General Catalyst, Insight, Sequoia, Thrive, Y Combinator. You've probably heard of some of those. However, here's what's so cool about Liz. This is why she is so my girl. In addition to her 15 years of tech and VC experience, 
She also leads and coaches from her spiritual practice. She's a Buddhist. She's a trained meditation teacher, and she has studied in really incredible places around the world. She's the creator of the podcast Reset with Liz Tran, and I just can't wait for you to meet her. So let's get going. Welcome to the show, Liz Tran. Hey, Liz, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me, Andy. My pleasure. I've already shared this with you, and I'm just going to say it again. I'm so thrilled to get into this conversation with you. There are so many things that I want to talk about, and I am fully obsessed with your book. It is absolutely incredible. So I just want to acknowledge that and give you a little round of applause for how amazing this book is. Thank you. And I wanted to return the favor because you recently launched your book as well. And it is also fantastic. And I think a very needed message and tools that the world needs right now with everything that's going on with mother nature. (laughs) Yes, it's so true. It's so true. Thank you so much for sharing that. Okay. So you, your story is so cool. You've done so much. And I shared a bit about you in the intro of the episode, but I would love to hear from your perspective a little bit about your journey and you're you're working and I just like want our audience to to like get this you are working with women at the highest level of business and I think that that is so important that that work working with women and helping them to fully step into their power so before we get into the book and all of the incredible lessons within the book I'd love for you to talk a little bit about your journey and what you're doing in your work today Yeah, absolutely. Um, I am an executive coach to startup founders. Um, On average, my clients have raised somewhere between 25 and 50 million, um, and they have anywhere from 30 to, you know, upwards of 100 employees. Um, But I usually start with them earlier than that. So most of them, I've been coaching them for two to three years. We meet every week or every other week, um, and we talk about both business and their own personal growth. And I see that as both of my jobs. Um, I have been doing this for four years. I didn't even know that coaching existed as a profession until I was 31. And as soon as I heard it, I thought, oh, that's what I want to do. And when I turned 34, I became a coach. And the journey to get there is not very straightforward. So for anyone who's listening, um, who has an idea in mind or doesn't have an idea in mind, I was always very driven, but didn't even know that the profession I would love existed until my early 30s. Um, And so much of my journey, I think, has been the pull between what other people think I should be doing, or rather what I think I should be doing, versus what I really want to do in my heart. Um, And that's really, you know, the 10 years that I spent in tech um, was trying to figure out what it was that I wanted or even knowing what it was I wanted. I never sought out to be in tech. I actually wanted to be in publishing when I graduated from college, but it was the recession. It was 2008. Um, and I fell into it and decided to make a career out of it because I had really no other choice. Um, and honestly, that kind of surrender and release, it wasn't the path that was ultimately meant for me, but it did get me to where I am today. So if I were to describe my career in maybe two or three words, I'd probably say surprising, (laughs) (laughs) nonlinear. And, um, you know, I think 
in education. Like there's been so many learnings along the way. So I'm happy to be where I am. Um, but when people say, how do I become an executive coach? I always say, um, I'll, I'll tell you how I did it, which was not super straightforward. I can tell you what I think you should do, but everyone's path is unique. Um, and so much of the book is about that methodology and mindset that I have, which is that we are not meant to follow a prescriptive plan. We can't copy and paste someone else's journey. We have to figure it out for ourselves, um, which is both a great joy and, you know, also a lot of hard work. Um, it's really what a coach helps their clients do. Um, and I wanted to find a way to kind of bring that coaching work to a broader audience. The book is truly a guide to personal and professional happiness, and it makes beautiful sense that the type of people that you're working with are those that are striving for great professional success, but also have this inner inner calling to find success personally, too, to live a happy life. And sometimes that can be really, really hard, especially in the world in which we're talking about, whether that's tech or whether that's startups or whether that's founding a, a consumer product-based brand. So in the book, to get us grounded in the conversation, can you start by telling us a little bit about our inner genius, what that is, and how we start to learn to trust our intuition? Yes, I love that. Every person if you're listening to this, every person, including you, has inner genius. And I think that word feels a little controversial because, you know, we look at ourselves and we're like, I'm not a genius. I haven't won the Nobel Prize, right? Or, you know, I haven't gotten Forbes 30 under 30, whatever distinction or designation we're looking for, but we all have it. And when you track back to every great work of art, literature, technology in the world, it came from someone who had an instinct, an inclination that they should do something. I think a great example is Sarah Blakely, who started Spanx. She had this little voice telling her, shapewear, make shapewear. Where would that come from? Where would that idea exist from? But she really listened to it despite all the ups and downs. Um, and we have experienced this to a smaller extent, all of us. It's you know that moment when you're in the shower and you think, oh, I know exactly what to do for my next podcast topic. Or you're walking down the street, you're like, oh, I should call my friend who I haven't spoken to in a year. And then you call your friend and your friend's like, I was literally just thinking about you. And so there's this connection that we have to an intelligence that is greater than our own conscious brain can handle. And we are always tethered to it. But the problem is we are so busy. <laughs> you know, our lives are just bursting. We run from appointment to appointment. Our phones are always dinging at us. And there's not a lot of space for the inner genius to come through. Um, and even if we do hear it sometimes, we might doubt ourselves and say, well, I don't know. Is that crazy? Is this valid? I don't know. And the through line is that when you ask people about some of their greatest ideas, they just don't really know how it happened. <laughs> They're like, oh, it just kind of came to me. Um, and the Romans actually coined the word genius, the ancient Romans. Um, and it actually, they believed that it was a spirit that everyone was born mm -hmm. with. And so the Latin word for genius comes from genere, which means um, to be born from. And so they believe that at the point where a person came into the world, they also all were accompanied by their own personal genius. And so I think a big part of what I want 
everyone to know is that they have that within them and their intuition. When you get that hit, the intuitive hit, that intuitive idea, that's not just a crazy thought you're having. It's not something that is just random. It is literally your inner genius trying to talk to you. Um, because we're not just these, you know, three-dimensional meat suits. Like we also each have a soul and that's a soul that knows so much that's been around for many, many lifetimes that has this wisdom that's trying to tell us something. You know, you hear all these stories about people who are like, I had a feeling that I shouldn't get on that train. And then the train crashes, you know, like I, I want to invite everyone who's listening just to start to think about moments in their lives where they've known something without knowing how they knew it. But later on, it wound up being true, and that's your inner genius. We're taught to chase achievement, to be ambitious, especially in the Western world. We're taught to listen to our minds, to listen to our egoic voice over that intuitive voice. And in the book, you really challenge this as a fallacy and say that the best results come from the inside out. You have a process called the intuitive work process. Will you tell us about that process? Yes. So the juxtaposition to intuitive work is mechanical work. And that is what most of us are really familiar with. As you mentioned, it's a standard in Western society. And that is do what you're told. And the person who's telling you is different at each juncture in your life. At first, it's your teacher's. It's also society, act the way other people are acting, act your age, right? And then it becomes your professors if you go to college, and then it's your bosses, and it's your coworkers, and it's the people who, you know, are in charge. Um, And, you know, for people who are overachievers, um, type A, ambitious people, they're like, okay, let me just do what you want me to, and I will do it the best, which is great, right? Because they excel in that framework. Um, whereas intuitive work is from the inside out, mechanical work is from the outside in where you're being given a set of rules to follow and intuitive work at one hand is natural to us, right? Like it's supposed to happen, but it's kind of been trained out of us because of schooling and, you know, the way that capitalism works, um, not to get into economics, but where you start with intuitive work is by getting to know yourself so that you can hear that voice, you can hear that intuition, and you start to learn that, yeah, it's great to have an awareness of what people are doing around you and what they think is valuable, but to prioritize that inner voice above all else. And I think especially as women, I see this with my clients, we can doubt ourselves. Even when we have expertise, we doubt ourselves. And so especially when we don't have expertise and we're just hearing our intuition, we can especially doubt ourselves. And the revolution that I want around intuitive work is for people to understand that um, just because the answer may not have come from you know, a mentor or a case study or a best practice somewhere, it's still valid. Our intuition is just as valid as data. There's a, an interlude in the book. It's called Goodbye Book. And I feel like you tapped deeply into this intuitive work process for yourself when this came up for you. This is a process I or a feeling I definitely know so well in my own writing journey. You wrote on Instagram. You said, I spent six months diligently writing my book, but in my heart, I knew it wasn't working. The chapters didn't build momentum. The words didn't flow. The whole process was stilted like driving a car with the parking brake on. And, and then in the book, you tell the story of waking up in the middle of the night. You were on this kind of writing 
weekend with several other authors and friends. And you had this revelation that you just had to change everything, the title, the theme. And then this was six weeks before your deadline, this happened. So tell me that story and how you really tuned into your own intuition to make the shift that you needed to make in that moment. Yeah. You know, I, it's funny. I think as writers, we write what we need to hear (laughs) and I definitely fall into the trap of mechanical work still, even though I wrote a book about it. Um, and I was so busy for that six months when I was writing of trying to balance running a company, doing IVF, renovating a house, like writing this book that I was just checklist queen, like not thinking very much about what I had to do, just trying to execute. Um, and it wasn't until I went to this retreat for the weekend where it honestly just came from having some space. We had lots of alone time to be where we were supposed to be writing and we were also in nature. So I think that's a big part of where you and I connect is that I think I have to be in proximity nature to hear my intuition. And so I was out in the desert. I could see little bunnies hopping around, little pheasants running around. It was so beautiful. And that night I had this thought and I was totally sober, (laughs) no wine, no drugs. I know I say like desert and people are like ayahuasca, (laughs) but I was seriously very sober. And it was probably, you know, 11, 12 at night. And I heard this voice that was like saying to me, oh, the reason why you can't write is because the foundation is crooked. You can't Mm -hmm. build on a broken foundation. And so you have to tear it all down. And then that night I was like, oh, I want to write about my intuition. This is what I want the book to be about. I want it to be about intuitive work. And so I started frantically scrolling my notebook. I was up all night. And the next morning I went to my friends over breakfast and I probably looked insane. And I was like, new title, new book, new outline. I'm going to do it. And I wondered if I was self-sabotaging myself, if this was real or if this was some sort of weird delusion I was having. And I sat through and I thought about it and I was like, okay, is this coming from the ego or is this coming from the heart? And honestly, the ego would probably say like, you need to keep going with what you've got. You sold this book to your publishers. They're expecting a book about spiritual entrepreneurship. And the intuition part of me said, you know, this isn't right. You felt it yourself. You don't need to justify it to anyone. And so I really leaned into it. I wrote to my editor and I said, just give me a couple of weeks. I'm going to show you something. I might be late. She said, it's fine. It's okay if you turn in your manuscript late. And then I wrote furiously for six weeks. And at the end of it, I turned in my manuscript on time. And my editor said, this is one of the best manuscripts I've ever read from a first time author. And it was exactly the process that I needed to take. And I know that I could not have arrived there without following my intuition. Um, and to me, it was so clear that it's hard to hear it. You know, I'm in this practice of coaching people and meditating and telling people, you know, listen to your intuition, but it took, um, really getting out of my day-to-day routine for that voice to come through. Mm. I have a mentor who said to me about it. This is probably about a year ago. We were in a, a mastermind experience and she said, I was like reporting on everything I had going on. And she was like, I have one assignment for you. Leave space for the magic. Like slow down, Mm. just leave space for the magic. And I was like so excited to come into this conversation that day with all the things that were happening. And she was like, that's all great. But like, I don't hear any room for magic. And we know, you know this, that the best stuff 
arrives when you leave that space and you're not leaving it. So that's, that's, that's it for you today. Just create space for the magic. I love that. I've never heard that before. And it's so beautiful because, um, it's almost like this assumption that magic exists because it does, Mm -hmm. But we don't remember, <laughs> like it really is out there. Like intuition is magic, you know, synchronicity is magic and it's hard to remember that. Yeah, it's a good reminder. So I, I'm on the regular now when I notice that my calendar is starting to get really full. I'm like, where's the space? Because I'm still, of course, quite type A and I'm like, run, you know, running everything by the Google calendar and I'm like, wait, no space for magic. <laughs> Plug in some room for magic. <laughs> like you got it. You got to do that. it. Do you have little holds on your calendar that say magic on them? Yeah. <laughs> I love yeah. that. And what that means for me is always different. It might mean, okay, just get outside and take a walk or like get out for a hike today or go meet a friend for a tea or go to the sauna or go take a walk in the backyard and just put your feet in the grass. And so much of what I ended up creating for Elemental in terms of the rituals in that book were the things I was doing when I was leaving space for magic. And then the magic truly became that that book became what it did as I was practicing that for myself. Yes. Yes. We write about what we want for our own lives. Yeah, we we totally do. Okay. I want to talk about the four expansions. Will you tell us about the four expansions? Expansions. Take us through those. Yes. So I... Well, one, this is a technically a business book. Um, my in, my publisher's imprint, I'm with Penguin Random House, but the imprint is called Portfolio and it has a lot of really straightforward business books like Seth Godin and, you know, people who are like, do it this way, follow this formula. And I didn't want to write that way, especially because I don't know if a lot of business books exist f- for women with women role models with people of color, with queer role models who are charting their own path, right? So much has been written about Steve Jobs, like to death about like what his routines and all these people stylize themselves around him. But I wanted to write something different. And so in that, um, I didn't want to have rules for, you know, seven strategies of highly successful people, whatever it is, seven habits of highly successful people. I want it to be more like you figure out for yourself what your inner genius wants for you. And so the result are the four expansions. So they're not rules of how to live, but they are basically saying, hey, you get to do this. Like, it's okay. And the first one is that you can be your authentic self. And I had to write that initially because I've never really felt that way, you know, especially in workplaces. And even when I started running my own company, I felt this pressure to like, be something else or, you know, show up in a certain way. For the longest time, I had my podcast information separated from my coaching work because I thought, oh, well, people won't take me seriously if they know I'm also doing this podcast thing. And that was all a block in my mind that I couldn't be authentic. Mm. So that was the first one is like, you know, you, you can be authentic. You can also change. So the changing self is an expansion. And that is about the idea that we are not stagnant. We're actually changing all the time. You know, our cells are constantly turning over. And in seven years, literally every cell in our body will be different. And can we let those changes happen naturally? 
The third expansion is around the intuitive self. So can we trust our intuition? Can we admit that we are magical, to use your words, I think that's a great word, we are magical, intuitive beings at our core. And finally, the fourth expansion is around joy. Work and drudgery have somehow become synonymous because of the culture that we live in. And that was a big part of my journey was breaking free to realize that joy is actually a better driver than anxiety, which was my primary fuel for like 10 years <laughs> was like, I, oh, are people going to be mad at me? Like, did I, did I mess things up? How, you know, that, that voice of never good enough. You're not good enough. Um, work harder, be more perfect. And it took a long time to learn how to replace that with a voice of joy. Like this is fun. You're good. You're good enough. Joy. Joy is such, that is like the pinnacle. We ju- if we can just create a life in which we are experiencing joy, joy for ourselves, joy for our families, joy for our clients, joy for our customers. That's really what it's all about. Yeah. Life is too short. I mean, when I worked in venture capital, I worked with all these wonderfully successful, brilliant people and no one seemed to be smiling very much. (laughs) No one seemed to be laughing. And, you know, we miss out on that. Like in my book, I think the statistic is, um, kids laugh like 150 times a day. And then we, if we're lucky, we laugh a dozen times a day mm-hmm. at most. And so, you know, there's a real lack of joy that exists. And, um, I don't know, I'm just trying to bring it back. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Let's bring it back. You tell a story in the book about your favorite boss saying that you, you personally don't get what you want because you're not asking for what, what it is that you, are desiring. And you said in the book that you were leaving opportunities on the table because you weren't stating your true desires. And that was a real awareness for you. How did you begin to find your voice to do this? Yeah, that's such a great question. It's interesting because I think I needed more role models of people who are really clear about what they wanted. I grew up um, in Virginia, (laughs) in Northern Virginia. Um, I was raised by a single mom and she was an immigrant from Vietnam. Uh, and she was very, very, in a very tight knit community with other Vietnamese people who had also immigrated. And so in her generation, these are all people who basically thought that their lives were going to go a certain way. They're very wealthy in Vietnam. And then suddenly they're teenagers on the cusp of adulthood, of the future of being independent And then they're forced to come to the U.S. and start all over where people think they're weird. They speak with an accent. They don't understand the language. And the opportunities that they had in front of them shrink significantly. And so I did not have exposure to role models of people who enjoyed their work or felt any real connection to it personally. Even the people in the community who were a little more successful, like lawyers or doctors, it was never like, this is my vocation. This is like something that is either a status symbol or something I need to do to make more money. And so it was really when I started working with all these founders, when I worked in venture capital, and I saw how their life stories had shaped where they were that day, where it was like, oh, I used to be a musician. And now I'm starting this platform that will help musicians get paid, right? Or, you know, I was raised in South America and now I'm trying to bring some of these services that we have in the U.S., South America. And I realized, oh, wait, if they're allowed to do this, why 
am I not allowed to have this too? And I was working with a therapist at the time and I was also getting divorced. I was married in my mid twenties, um, and divorced by the time I was 30 in a very codependent relationship. And she was also saying, Liz, do you know what you want? Are you sure you like the things that you actually like? Why don't we just question it at all? And so it was at this point in my life where like everything was on the table. It was like, do I even like the hobbies that I have? Do I even have the same interests as my ex-husband that I thought I did? Um, And so I was experimenting and learning a lot about myself. And it meant that I lost a lot of friends and I changed a lot about myself, you know, like the way I dressed and all this stuff and what I was interested in. Um, But it was a necessary shaping that had to happen because I had delayed it for so long. Will you tell us about, I want to talk about inner inquiry, which is, it sounds like you were doing a lot of that. But before we do that, I would love for you to break down the, the four spiritual strategies. One of those is doing that inner inquiry. And then I want to get into some of the other ones too, but tell us about those four components first. Yeah. So the first is inquiring inward. And that's about basically turning the attention away from what's outside, right? Mechanical work and turning it onto ourselves where it's giving each person permission to say, let me study myself. Like the most interesting topic that I could ever study in school is me. Who am I? Let me take some personality tests. Let me learn about myself. Let me put language to how amazing I am. Let me also give myself some time and space to be with myself. And it's such a wonder to me because we study everything in school, but there's not a single class that is about the self. Like maybe psychology, kind of, but that's more about frameworks. But we're never asked to like do that inquiry work. And my friend Aviva Ram, she always says, you need to spend as much time in the internal as the external, but we're never taught how to do that. So that's the first step. It's like, let's get to know you. (laughs) And around this time when I was trying to figure out myself, I became obsessed with astrology, numerology, personality tests, because I was suddenly allowed to see myself in a lens and have precise words to describe the unique person that I was. So that's the first step is like, let's center life around you, not in a selfish way, but in an interested way. Let's become interested in ourselves. And then after that, we have manifesting mindfully. So it's this idea, can you focus on what it is that you really want, declare it to the world? And then there's a process in the book that is a pretty simple process for manifesting. But I think that's, you know, important is like declaring what it is that you want in the world. Um, and then learning how to feel confident and positive, positive enough to get it. Um, after that, we have enriching your energy. Um, this is all about making sure that your engine is functioning as highly as possible in the same way that we need to care for our physical bodies. We also need to take care of our energetic bodies. They're the same thing. And I think we all feel it when we're like, oh yeah, my energy is really low or you're around someone who really sucks your energy and you're like, oh, can't be around this person. I feel so drained. And there are some strategies in the book that help you figure out how to eliminate the things that are sucking your energy and then also how to amplify the energy that you have. And then the last one finally is called becoming brilliant. And this is my favorite one. And it's about changing one's mindset away from the typical beliefs that we have around work and how we need to 
toil in order to be successful and how we need to be hard on ourselves and how we need to push ourselves and how we need to be perfect. And this section dismantles all of those beliefs and shows evidence for why they're actually not true and then gives some alternatives that are much more loving, joyous, and effective than what we have. One of the ways that you talk about doing that inward inquiry is by practicing solitude, stillness, silence. And you say that those three things are really prerequisites for our inner genius. And yet we struggle so much with those three things, with solitude, stillness, and silence. Why Why do you think that is? I think, you know, we're all living in this like crazed age of anxiety and technology and speed. Why have we gotten so far away from solitude, stillness, and silence? And how do we start to reconnect to that in our lives? You know, it's actually not our fault. Um, the society we live in is so hungry for our attention. If you think about the whole point of the internet is it's there to get our eyeballs on things. And that's really how the mechanisms of the pay structures work, right? Like how many people are looking at a site, how many people are opening the app. And so literally everything is clawing for our attention constantly. The other day I looked at this, the stats on my phone where you can go in and you can see how many times you pick your phone up, how much time you're spending on your apps. And I was like terrified (laughs) about my own behavior, even seeing it just listed out in a data-driven way. Um, and my husband checks his every week and he's like, these are my stats. I'm like, I can't even look at that. I'm, I'm terrified. Um, and it's not our fault. You know, everything wants our attention. Everything is right now as well. Um, I am old enough where like, I remember working in an office where, you know, we were on email, but then you shut off your email and you went home and no one was texting each other and no one was, you know, working outside of the bounds. No one was emailing you late at night. And it feels like those boundaries have dissolved and that suddenly your attention is available for everyone. They can have it whenever they want. They can grab it. Um, and if we're not fighting as hard for our own attention, silence, stillness, and solitude, then someone else is going to take it away from us because it's valuable. And this is the way I think about it too, even with friendships and relationships. Like I love my family. I love my friends. I love my husband. But if you think about it, they're also incentivized to just want to be around us. You know, they love us. Like that's the thing. And we are the only ones who can advocate to create that solitude for ourselves. Um, And for, you know, a lot of my life when I was single, I had that solitude baked into my lifestyle. Um, and now that I'm not, I really, really have to fight for it. Um, because I remember how good it was, um, and how many revelations came from that. Um, but we really need to sit in our own energy field and be in our own energy bubble without it being commingled with others to hear those voices come through. Such a good reminder. And for those that are human design aficionados, which I know a lot of our listeners are, you can look at your human design and get even more clarity around how much energetic field time you need with no one else in it. And for some folks, that's a lot of time. And we get into these just relationships, into our working time, our working days where we have no time, where there's not others in our energetic field. And then we're completely drained and we're like, I don't even know that I did anything today that cost this. It's just not having that time to really allow yourself to 
have that stillness and get that recharge that you so, so desperately need. What, what's your human design I'm a type? manifesting generator through and through. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I love that. I love that. What's yours? I'm a projector, I, I, feel, I was like, I, I already I was, know that about me. <laughs> yeah. I kind of thought you were a manifesting generator. I was reading your website. I was like, this person gets it done. <laughs> like you just, you know, you're like, you see it and then it, you know, it's very cool. Um, yeah, I, I, I second that. If you haven't looked into your human design, that was an unlock for me in understanding myself. Yeah. Yeah. And as a projector, I, my husband's a projector. So I know your type so, so well. And I have to respect that about my husband, that he needs more of that time where there is no one else in his energetic field. And I'm like, let's go, let's do this. Let's. And he's like, need to, need to exit the room, please. So like in our house, he has, he's a musician. He has a studio that's separate from our house. It's like a separate structure. And it's the best work he's ever done because there's nobody else invading that energy. And he needed that so, so much. And it's been amazing when we like really started to consider, okay, how are you get best going to work and how am I best going to work being two people that are creating so much at home. And we considered his projectorness in a big way when deciding how we were going to work out, how we, how we would do things. And I think that's why inquiring inward, that first spiritual strategy is so essential because if you didn't have that understanding of your husband and he didn't understand that about what you needed, imagine how many arguments and frustrations there might be. And my friend Tanya, she runs a company called Rainbow and they have all the employees, human design types, like in a Google drive so you can see what it is that people need. Um, because otherwise, how would we ever know? You know, you just wind up, you feel frustrated or you feel like you need something, but not justified in being able to ask mm, for it. I love that. That's, that's really cool. Good job, Tanya. So good. So good. Yeah. <laughs> okay. There's a chapter in the book called $2 Coffee Rich, and it's the story of starting reset. And you also talk about the law of attraction in that chapter. You personally went from, <clears throat> from having your venture capital job to then becoming a person who had $140,000 in debt, a $30,000 tax bill. And there was a moment that you said to yourself, who am I to follow my dreams? Like, what am I doing? And your friends were even joking with you that you had the reverse minus touch. They were saying, <laughs> everything you do is turning to chaos. So how did you move through that and maintain some mental stability, not give up on the dream and attract in what inevitably became this really thriving business that you've created. Yeah, man. It's so funny because I can, I can distinctly put myself back in the shoes of that time where, you know, as I said, when I was growing up, I was extremely, um, financial, there was a lot of financial instability. You know, we lived in government subsidized housing. It was always a question of, did we have enough money to do this or that, you know, could we pay the electricity bill? Could I go on this field trip? Could I pay my rent in college? You know, could I pay my cell phone bill? Um, and so that was a big drive for me because I think I associated, um, poverty with chaos in my mind. And I thought if I can create enough wealth for myself, I won't ever have to go back to that world mm -hmm. again. You know, it was such a sad world for like a little kid to navigate, to feel like there's never enough. And, when I got this venture capital job, I felt like I had arrived, you know, I like was an executive, I was making half a million dollars a year. 
And then honestly, as soon as I started following my dreams, it was like within a year, I was a hundred and basically $170,000 in debt. And I was like, what just happened? And I had wiped out all my savings that I had made. I had wiped out my 401k. I had put money on credit cards that had high interest rates. It was some of the worst decision-making I'd I've ever seen, even though I consider myself financially, you know, pretty illiterate person. Um, and I think what happened is that, well, not what I think what happened, but because my studio shut down during the pandemic, what happened was, you know, I was losing money every month. And then around month six, I started making money and then three months into making money, then all in-person gatherings were made illegal in New York city because of the pandemic. And that was the source of income that I had. It was the way I was making money. I was doing corporate retreats and then classes, gatherings of people. So I had to put everything into storage. I still, I had to move out of that space, break the lease, lose a $20,000 deposit that I had put in and not on my own accord, but because of circumstances, I actually had a lot of time for the three S's. For the first time in my life, I was severely underemployed, looking for clients, you know, trying to find ways to make money, but I had time, you know, even trying to do business development, I had time. And the world was also in this weird liminal space where people didn't know if they wanted to hire consultants because they didn't know if their comp- what was going to happen to their companies. And so I had this time and I thought, okay, how do I get myself out of this? And so I started reading, rereading and reading um, self-help books about money. And, you know, there's some old classics like Think and Grow Rich, right? That I like had read when I was in high school or college and I picked up again. And I read a book called The Energy of Money. I mean, I became obsessed with trying to figure out what was wrong with my mindset and how I'd gotten into myself, gotten myself into this place. And what they all said, you know, the secret, all those classic books is that it's the law of attraction. When you see that the world is filled with unfortunate circumstances, sadness, bad luck, you attract more of it into your life. And when you see that the world is filled with good fortune, abundance, love, then you attract more of that into your life. And so the title $2 Coffee Rich comes from me just trying to find three things to be grateful for every day. And sometimes there were so few things that it was literally as simple as like, I can afford a $2 cup of coffee. You know, paying my rent then was so stressful. I used to just get panic attacks from opening my Chase app. And then I started priming myself and saying, wow, I get to pay rent because I have enough money to pay rent. You know, there were times in my life where I didn't have enough money to pay rent. So now I do even like looking in my closet and being like, I have clothes to wear that I really love things like that. I can afford shampoo. Um, and then I also kept a list of things that I did well that day. Cause I was trying to build up love for myself again. I felt like a failure and some days it was as simple as I did the dishes or I answered all my emails and it was a beautiful thing because I had based my whole life on mechanical work, external validation, waiting for people to pat me on the back. And when all of that was ripped away, I had to build it up for myself and knowing that I could do that, I could learn to love myself. I could learn to see the world positively from as small steps as saying, I had coffee today. I could afford coffee and I did the dishes. <laughs> it's like, it's pretty great. <laughs> coffee and dishes and I'm winning today. Yeah. Yes. I'd love to talk a little bit more about manifesting mindfully. Can you take me through a couple of the other mindful manifestation exercises that are in the book? 
Yes, absolutely. Um, so the first one is to set your vision. And this is something I do with all my clients as well. Whenever they want something, I'm like, tell me the details. I want you to be able to see it, smell it, hear it as if you are physically there. Tell me everything that this looks like for you. And of course it may not always wind up becoming hundred percent true, but at least you can see yourself in the vision. And this is a skill that athletes, West Point cadets, anyone who's at a high performance level has learned how to do. Michael Phelps is a champion swimmer. He pictures every race in his mind a hundred times before he actually does the race himself. And by that point, when he gets there, he's already won it in his head. And so he feels very comfortable going in. And so what you're doing when you're creating your vision is you're allowing yourself to feel very comfortable with what could be. It's, you know, when I wrote, was writing this book, I photoshopped like a little thing that said that my book would be number three on the New York times bestseller list. And I kept it on my computer. And my husband was like, why number three? <laughs> like, just give yourself number one. And I had a block. I was like, Oh, well, there's no way I could ever be number one. Like, I don't even think I could be number three. I'm trying to help myself get there. And so it's like, we're stopping ourselves before we even start. The next tip is around building confidence to know that you can do it. And so it's, you know, that type of thing of like writing what you do really well, connecting to your strengths, being the one who gives yourself that confidence, not waiting for someone else to give it to you. And I think that's really, really important because I think a lot of us are waiting for that achievement to be able to say, oh, I'm good enough. But really we need to feel good enough first before we actually go and do it. You know, that's going to be the best outcome for us. Um, and so, um, I tend to think that those two plus gratitude is like the secret vision, confidence, gratitude. I'd love for you to tell me about your journaling process. I it's, it's interesting for me as a writer, I struggle a little bit with my journaling process because I start to do this, like it needs to be perfect. And like, what's, what, what's going to happen when I read it back? And I like, I'm judging myself and doing the work in the artist way. Julia Cameron's book that's been around for 25 some years has been really helpful to me because the rule of the the morning pages is you don't go back and reread it. And so I take that judgment away. But I love your process. Appreciate your life. Track progress and growth. Gain self-confidence and find inspiration. Can you tell me a little bit more about that process? Yeah, I... Well, I use my journal two ways. Like one is to record my life, but as you said, I don't really like to reread that. <laughs> Sometimes I read it, I'm like, hmm, very, very weird that I thought right. that. Very interesting. Okay. Um, but the other way I use it is to reprogram my subconscious mind. That's actually the way that I most use journaling now. Um, and I think it's really important because, you know, we naturally as humans have a negativity bias. It only takes it only, it actually literally takes zero time for negative experiences to imprint in the brain, like zero, something bad happens to us or we mess something up and the brain remembers it as a memory. When good experiences happen, we have to intentionally focus on them for a minimum of seven seconds before they become a memory. And so we're walking around like Teflon for good experiences and like Velcro for negative experiences. And so our brains are like always geared towards like, what could I do better? How can I be better? You know, what did I mess up? And so I try to use my journaling as a way to offset that, <laughs> you know, and try to like actually know that my brain has a bias and fix it. Um, I also always have some vision that I'm working towards. I write it in my journal and I reread it almost every single day. Um, 
for a while, it was like with selling a book to an, uh, an editor, getting the right agent. Um, for a while after that, it was around trying to get pregnant because it was a really long journey. Um, and you know, it works. Like I just close my eyes and I really just picture this one vision over and over and over again. Um, and it's just so striking. I had held this vision of me opening the box that had my book copies in it for five years. And then when the day finally came to open it, it was so surreal. It's like, you know, it was kind of like talking to a pen pal for five years and then you meet them in person and you're like, oh, you're my best friend. Mm-hmm. You know, I could imagine it over and over again. And so I do try to know that my brain is wild. It will go where it wants to go. And the power of mindfulness is to direct it where I want it to go and for to make it work for me. The last thing I want to ask you about, and you said that this is one of your favorite spiritual strategies is the process of becoming brilliant. Will you talk to me a little bit about that? Yeah. I really believe that we are too hard on ourselves and it is doing a disservice to all of us. And what I talk about in the the section becoming brilliant is something called the gentle way. And I love that phrase because, you know, it takes away this, this, this sort of image of people who are ambitious, you know, like when job descriptions used to say, like, are you like, are you a rock star? You know, like, are you here on this rocket ship with us? Like, are you going to crush it? And like that language is so violent and so mm, effortful. Whereas I do think that our lives are like meant to unravel and we are meant to receive in a much more gentle way. And so this section is very much about, you know, taking all the hard things that happen to us and converting them into strengths. It's about taking the things that are happening to us and seeing how they're happening for us. It's about looking at the things that we lack and realizing that those are actually advantages. Um, And my hope is that with this section, Um, people leave feeling like the path to get what they want doesn't have to tear them apart, but it can be one of ease, softness, gentleness, and a lot, a lot, a lot of self-love. When I work with my clients, I often ask them this question of what percentage of their thoughts are critical versus loving. And most of them say that 90% of their thoughts are critical. And becoming brilliant is all about flipping that on its head. And of course, we want to push ourselves to succeed, but we don't have to do it through self-flagellation. We can do it by being our own biggest cheerleaders. Absolutely. Absolutely. And you close the book book with two words. Those words are trust yourself. And I think that's that's just what it's all about, right? Just learning to trust ourselves. And that's that can be so challenging. And the book is such a guiding, guiding step-by-step, but also just like deep reminder of how we find that trust. Thank you. Yeah. I, you know, again, we write what we don't have and it took me so long to trust myself. And if I can, you know, compel or, you know, start to nudge anyone in the direction of trusting themselves like a day earlier than they might have otherwise, um, then that makes me really happy. <laughs> and that's, it's so beautiful. Liz, can you tell our listeners where they can find you and Reset and the book as well as you are on your way to becoming a number one bestselling author? <laughs> yes, thank you. Um, 
Number three. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> so Isn't that so funny? Mm-hmm. It's like, it just shows the limitations of the human mm-hmm. mind. It's like, you know, um, so I am at reset NYC on Instagram. Um, and I post lots of inspirational stuff that is meant to help people reach their greatest potential. Um, I have a website and it's Liz hyphen tran.com. And you can find information about the book. It's called the karma of success and it should be anywhere that you find books, <laughs> Amazon, indie bookstores, all that good stuff. Um, and I will be, um, on Instagram a lot, talking about the book and, and sharing resources and tools around it. Beautiful. Thanks for being here. It's been such a pleasure to have you. Thank you for being in the conversation with me and asking such great questions. And thank you for reading the book. You're one of the first people who has read it through and through. So. I was, so, I was so thrilled. A second I like landed in my mailbox. I was like, oh, we are going, we are going all the way in. It's, <laughs> and it's so great. And I, I would just tell our listeners, if you're feeling like, oh, you know, sitting down and like reading a book on business or reading a book on mindset or reading a book on spirituality can be a little bit challenging sometimes. And like, maybe you want to reach for something else. This is a really engaging and fun book to read too. The storytelling is beautiful. So it's, it's a, it's a great read. So I love, I love it so much. Thank you. I tried to fill it with the tea yeah. to keep people interested. Yeah. So if you want to get the tea on my life, like all the mistakes and failures, I'm very open about them. So yes. yes. Um, thank you, Andy. My pleasure. Thanks for being here. Thanks so much for listening to this episode today. Thank you to Liz for joining me in this conversation. I hope this has been really expansive for you. Getting to know Liz has been so expansive for me, and I hope it's helpful for you too. If you've loved this episode, give it a share on social and tag us at your woo-woo BFF. You can also tag Liz at Reset NYC. Let us know you listened. Let us know what insights you gathered from this episode. And if you've not yet left us a review, it would mean the world to me and our small team. This is an independently produced podcast with a very small team behind it. We are self-funded. And so when you leave us reviews, it helps us to grow and get new listeners, which is absolutely magical for us. So give us a review if you've not yet done so. You can simply drop down onto the app that you're listening to this show on. Tap the five stars if you feel like that's what this episode is worthy of. If you know someone out there that would benefit from hearing this conversation, you can also share this episode, do a quick copy and share the link with a friend that maybe needs to hear it. I know I love when my friends send me their favorite episodes of the podcast they're listening to. So I hope you would do the same if you've loved this show. I'll be back again next week. We've got great interviews coming your way for the rest of the season. So stay tuned. Come right back next Tuesday. I will see you then. Until then, signing off, your woo-woo bestie. Have a great one. Much love.